Today we're going to continue with the Kingdom of God series, Chapter 3, Major Biblical Themes. Uh, as you know, we spent a few weeks on creation and creationism. Um, as a, because creation is a major biblical theme, uh, a lot of people think of creation as having to do with Genesis. But Jesus quotes from Genesis 127. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2. He quotes from, uh, I love how people text me in the middle of church. So he quotes from Genesis chapter 2. Uh, he quotes from Deuteronomy. Uh, Paul, a major theme of all his writings is creation. If there's no Adam, then there can't be any second Adam. If there's, if there's no original couple, and if sin didn't enter the world at that time, then there's no point to the entire Christian faith. So there's a reason we, we went into, there's a reason why uh, probably the, the major focus in the last uh, 200 years against the Christian faith has been to try to erode, erode the idea of creation. And uh, if, you, you know, Psalm 11, 3, if, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, I decided to just finish off what we were doing on creation in a seminar this summer. And I'm, basically what we're going to do is in May, June, July, and August, I'm going to have a Saturday seminar on four different subjects. going to have one on, and one on creationism and, what, and presuppositional apologetics. So it was just too much of a subject to, to uh, get into in 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. I need more like four hours. So uh, Moving on in the uh, major biblical things, today we're going to look at the depths of man's fall. And as you know, in major biblical themes, we've looked at things like the plenary inspiration of Scripture. We've looked at, I'm trying to find my notes here. We looked at eternal decree. We looked at covenant. We looked at a couple different things, like eight aspects of all biblical covenants. That's something you should know. Like, you really won't be able to minister to people. You really won't be able to understand how to relate to God. If you, you should learn those eight aspects of covenant. You should look for them in all of life. And, uh, you know, the, you should see the continuity between the covenants uh, if you're going to interpret the Bible rightly. Uh, there, you know, uh, a way of interpreting the Bible began to grow up in the late 1800s that makes the uh, that makes the covenants very dis, discontinuous and, and dis, uh, disarranged. What, I don't know what word I'm looking for. They're, uh, they're just not, they're not inextricably intertwined. They're not tied together. And, uh, and, you, and the net result is you actually get a, an idea that God is one kind of God in the Old Testament and he's another kind of God in the New Testament, and, and that's absurdity. So... God is eternal. He's unchanging. So what else, those are some of the things we've been looking at, and I'm doing this in preparation to go on. If you look at, please turn over and look at the back of chapter 2, or the back of the page. I'm, I'm doing this. Uh, there will be one more kind of segue called an introduction to biblical imagery, which we'll spend, I don't know, five, ten weeks on. But that will lay the foundation to then start doing a survey of the whole Old Testament and seeing the, the theme of the kingdom of God developed from Genesis to Revelation. Okay, and that's what we'll start in by the time we get to chapters 5 and 6, okay, just so you know where we're going. All right, today we're going to look at the, the fall of man, and I've titled this Plumbing the Depths of the Fall of Man. Now, uh, boy, I'm really having trouble with my eyes and the light today. I'm going to have to stand over here. Um, so... Um, maybe I'll get a lamp and put it there or something. 
So uh, I would imagine today that a lot of you don't know what a plumb line is. A plumb line was an instrument used in carpentry and in building things, and it was quite common. As a general rule, uh, all kinds of measuring devices like rulers and all kinds of leveling devices like levels have kind of replaced plumb lines. But a plumb line was simply a leaded weight, uh, usually with a point on it at the bottom, and that leaded weight was tied to a piece of string and if you wanted to see how level, how plumb, that is perpendicular with the Earth's gravity, a doorway was or a um, um, wall or something like that, you could take a, a little device of any kind that would, say, you know, stick out from the wall like three inches and drop the plumb line and then see if it's the same three inches at the bottom of the wall. And if it is... Then it's, then it's what's called plumb. Today, you still use that term in carpentry, although people use a level, and the level has a sideways bubble, call, and, and it's used for plumbing. If you can't, if the door is not uh, square, if both the top is not level and the sides are not perfectly vertical with the Earth's gravity, then you can't hang the door correctly. Either the door won't fit in the opening or it won't, it'll automatically close or open or whatever it, it you have to get you have to get the the door jams that the hinges hang on you have to get them plumb uh, uh, in in two different directions and the you got to get the header uh, horizontal and perfectly level or else you really can't work with any a door and if you uh, build uh, buildings, you know, one of the common problems in building is that uh, lots of guys who do the rough carpentry work called the framing are not particularly that careful about whether things are plumb or square and so forth. And to whatever degree they're not careful, they create problems for the people who hang the drywall and put the windows in and so forth. That's why it's actually become the standard, sadly, that uh, when, when you frame in a window, you leave two inches extra so that the you know you with shims and everything else you can get the window square and plumb with reality because the opening's not going to be square or plumb. Uh, I take the time to just make this opening so square and plumb that I can just stick the window in, and I only leave about a quarter of an inch gap because <laughs> the opening's already close, almost perfectly square or plumb. So plumb uh, was used another way, and that and, and plumb was used. Uh, to discover the, how deep something was, particularly in things like wells where they couldn't see the bottom, they would uh, drop, the, uh, drop the heavy weight in until it hit the water. And when it hit the water, they would just measure how long the string was. And therefore, they knew how, deep, how far down the water was. So the Bible uses the word plumb line several times. I just put one of them in your notes, Amos Seven, seven through eight, it says, Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line. Now you know what he was doing. In his hand, the Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. <laughs> King sense for the obvious. And uh, then the Lord said, Behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will spare them no longer. Okay, now, uh, what the Lord is saying to Amos is 
I'm going to measure my people against myself, the ultimate, because God is the ultimate in being perfectly right. He is perfectly right. He doesn't need, like if things are off, you need to put things like shims in to get them level or whatever. God doesn't need any adjusting at all. He's perfect as he is. So the the ultimate plumb lines in the Bible are first the law of God, because the law of God, as Paul says, is the embodiment of the truth, because it comes out of the nature of God and the attributes of God. Therefore, this modern concept that developed again in the late 1800s that has pretty much destroyed the evangelical church called antinomianism, where because we're in the spirit, we don't have to be under the law. And the whole misinterpretation of that that's come about in modern times, that if because I've prayed a sinner's prayer, I can just do whatever the heck I want and live however I want. I'm eternally secure, so I don't have to fear God, love God, obey God. And, and uh, you know, there's no sanctions to covenants or anything like that. That whole crazy antinomian concept has destroyed our whole culture. Before that idea occurred, our culture was actually very influenced by Christianity. Today, our culture is lawless to incredible degrees. Okay, so I, I, I want to start by your knowing what a plumb line is. And the ultimate plumb lines in Scripture are the Lord himself. God gave the commandments as a plumb line so that we could see sin because sin is so deceitful that it hides and blinds us. So the commandments help us see the utter sinfulness of our sin. If there's any one thing that I've noticed about uh, people who've grown up in Christian homes today is they don't see themselves as sinful. They see themselves as basically a pretty good person who grew up in church, and I've made a few mistakes, and I might need a little bit of help. So I've asked Jesus into my life, but I don't want him to get too bossy, and I want him to stay in the backseat, keep his opinions to himself, and I, I might need a little paint job or something, but I don't need a complete teardown and rebuild. I don't need to be a new creation, as John taught about last week in 1 John 3. And that's that was Nicodemus's problem, as he brought out. Nicodemus thought he was basically pretty good. He grew up in church, synagogue, so forth. He, he was so blind to the real depth of his depravity and sin. So today, what I'm my goal is, is I, I hope you come out of here seeing yourself as much worse of a sinner than you are. My pastor, Ray Nethery, has a little joke. He chuckles and after he says this, and he says, uh, don't worry, it's actually much worse than you think. <laughs> you know, he said, I think he says, cheer up. He goes, cheer up. It's actually much worse than you think. Your sin problem, there is not a person who's an exception to this in this room. Your sin problem is much worse than you think. And it's exponentially worse than you think. It's exceedingly abundantly above all, you, uh, above all you could ask or think or imagine. And the more you see that, the more you're able to experience the grace of Christ. Romans 5.20, talks of, is, Paul is talking about the law uh, showing sin so that sin might become utterly sinful. And where sin abounds all the more, Grace abounds all the more. The reason people don't want our message, as I hope you'll understand by the end of this message, is because they don't see their need for a Savior. 
because they see themselves as basically good. 80% of people surveyed uh, believe they live a morally good life. There's all kind of proverbs about that. But the Lord weighs the motives. And if you're going to ever become fruitful evangelistically, you're going to have to learn how in a very defensive generation where people are programmed, they, they didn't have good relationships with their father, they didn't have good relationships with their school, they didn't have good relationships with their coaches, and they've been entitled, and they've been flattered, and so forth to death, and they've been encouraged, 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 but they've never learned the loving power of, of confrontation, admonishment, and correction. They actually uh, do, you know, they've re recently, there's been several psychological surveys that have studied things, and they found that one of the problems with what they call the millennial generation, and, and people are trying to wonder how it became so narcissistic, one of the problems is because there was a philosophy of raising children that came out in the 50s and the 60s that really swept the church as well as the world that said, encourage your kids all the time. Tell them how great they are. Now, uh, one of the, I think it was Saturday Night Live or might have been a little skit on somebody like Jimmy Kittle, Kimmel, but, you know, one of the late night comedy things, did a whole skit on that where they basically were saying, you know, what, what kids don't have is they don't have any correction. So they're like, I'm really proud of your artistic ability, but you sure are a loser at sports, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, and they were, because actually what's happening is parents think in the name of loving your kids, it should be all approbation, all commendation, all encouragement, all comfort, all the time. And that leads to very self-absorbed people. Just like the old saying that's pretty much gone now, soft preaching leads to hard hearts and hard preaching leads to soft hearts. Has anybody heard that before they came to this church? Beth did. Jason, you heard that. It's a common old saying that's dying with our soft preaching. Because if you want to sell, you you know you can't tell the truth anymore. Um, it's not good for television. So now, when I was preparing this message, I, I really struggled with whether to do this because um, that frankly, I just didn't have, I ended up down here at the building last night with, with Sydney and Sam till about midnight, and I just didn't really have enough time to get it all done. And then as I began to continue to think about sin and putting the message together, I realized when it comes to, to depravity, I'm an expert. <laughs> so, so I went ahead with it. Well, that was like a joke. <laughs> okay. Like, you know, they have honorary degrees. And now, nowadays, one of the ways that colleges are trying to, uh, to get older people like me to come back to school is uh, if, you know, if you go for a late life master's degree or a second master's degree or whatever, they'll give you credit for life experiences. And I got a master's degree just in depravity from my life experiences. So I'm ready to teach on this subject. I mean, I, I know sin. <laughs> you know, like McDonald's knows lousy hamburgers. But uh, um, when it comes to sin, I'm an expert experientially. So let's get into this. Uh, the fall of man. I was going to have Jason read these scriptures, but I'll just, I'll just, I forgot to get that arranged ahead of time. So I'm just going to read some scriptures to us. First of all, Roman numeral three on the top of your page, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. 
Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the earth, etc. In the image of God, he made, created them. Male and female created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, then fill the earth and subdue it and rule, have dominion over the fish, etc. I want you to see a couple things there. Uh, two basic things that we're going to talk about, about the nature of man and the psychology of man is you are created... Therefore, you have value. You're created by God in the image of God. Every human being has incredible value. That's why people rescue drunks and run city missions and do whiz kids and everything else. Every human being is worth giving up your life to save their life. That's the whole point of Christ's life. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life is a ransom for many. Go and do likewise. Okay, so every person has amazing value because they're created in the image of God. And they were created to be fruitful and multiply. That is, every person has a purpose. And until you really discover God in such a way that you discover your calling and your purpose, and it starts to change you so that you give up undiscipline and, and bad diet and, and wrong priorities and... Uh, everything else, for the sake of the king and for the sake of his calling, you'll have a life that's not worth living. You'll have a life of constant frustration. You'll have problems with uh, your money always disappears no matter how much you make. You won't be able to sleep. You won't be able to keep your appetites under control. You, life just won't work. You'll have broken relationships in your family. Because you were called to have a set purpose rooted in God and his mission. And until your whole life begins to be consumed by becoming that, you have no reason to live. And your life is actually a, somewhat of a sad tragedy until that point. Now, uh, moving on, Genesis 2. I just want to point out that they were put in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. They weren't put in the garden to go get their monthly welfare check. You know, not having jobs destroys people. You're you're called to work and to cultivate and to be fruitful, and if and you you need it. People wonder if we'll work in heaven. Yes, we'll work in heaven. It's so basic to our nature, you'll have a job in heaven. It just won't be subject to, the, the, to any degree of the curse at all anymore. And your job, your, the, thing, the work of your hands will always be eternal. Um, I wish I could read the whole account of Roman Genesis 3. Um, I'm not going to do that for sake of time. Hopefully you've read Genesis 3 many times. Uh, that's one of the most foundational chapters of the Bible that you should have read a hundred times in the first hundred days you were a Christian or something. Uh, you know, uh, read it and read it and read it. You really need it. Uh, so there's other scriptures here, but I'm, I'm going to move on. First John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin uh, is lawless because sin is lawlessness. Okay. John 9 31 when it, it the whole the whole chapter when he heals the blind man and so says he basically says for this I came into the world that those who thought they could see would become blind and those who see thought that were blind could see if if you still think you can see then you're blind 
If you acknowledge before God how blind you are, then you can see. That's why the Bible's always doing things like Paul, who thought he could see, gets struck down by a bright light, and things are seen better in the light. And there, for the, for the first time, he can see spiritually. After he says, who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus, you're pers- who you're persecuting. And he, and he follows Jesus, and he starts to do what Jesus says. And for the first time, he can see, and he's blind <laughs> for three days. The, the Bible's always contrasting blindness with, with seeing. That's why, uh, you know, Jesus was the first prophet of God to heal those who were born blind. Beca- not because that's less important than, you know, raising people from the dead like Elijah did or parting the Red Sea or any other miracle. It's because God is making an emphatic point. Only Jesus opens the eyes of people born blind. And one of the aspects of our sin nature is we are all incredibly blind. But you're much more blind than you think. And the, and the lack of opening people's eyes up to how much they're blind is the greatest disservice we've, we've gotten. C.S. Lewis talked about it in his problem with pain back in the 50s. We, we've become a culture that can't say any truth because we haven't, we've developed a defensiveness to truth. If anyone tells us anything uh, hard to hear, we get mad. We get defensive. We, we have become experts at blame shifting, excuse making, rationalizing, justifying ourselves. And all that started in Genesis 3 when, man, when God confronted Adam and he said, The woman, by the way, whom thou hast given me. First he starts blaming his wife, then he decides to go a little deeper and smacks God right in the face. The woman thou gave me. If, if you hadn't given me this lousy woman, I, it's your fault, God. And then Eve... Uh, jumped right in and said, it's the serpent's fault. And the serpent was happy to take the credit, but it really wasn't his fault. <laughs> well, he, he didn't help, but uh, certainly. But, uh, you know, he didn't make them. I used to fight with my little sister a lot when I was growing up, and her favorite line was, now see what you made me do. And I was always quick to point out, I didn't make you do anything. <laughs> All right, so... Um, Let's get into this. Uh, first point, I want to make a little point about man's psychology. And the first thing is that man is a tripart being. God breathed into man the breath of life. Out of, you know, he formed him out of the material parts, breathed into him the breath of life, which is the word spirit, ruah in the Hebrew. And he became a living being that's the word for soul, a self-conscious being. We were talking about this Thursday night. There's many implications of of God, of men, mankind being made in the image of God that differentiate us from the animals. The evolutionists are always trying to try to close the gap between human beings and, and animals so they can say we're not a special creation of God and we're not made in God's image and we're just a product of biological time and all this nonsense. And the reason they want to do that is uh, to try to get God out of the picture. They're highly motivated to do so by their sin nature, as we'll see as we go on. And so um, they, they try to minimize the difference. But here's a, something you can never do. Dolphins really can learn things. So can chimpanzees. But they can't philosophize about it. They don't know that they know. And they don't know that they're learning. And they can't talk about epistemology. And what's the theories of how we learn? <laughs> 
They can't philosophize. And even rebellious guys who are totally blind, like Descartes, who's totally, his whole point in life was to rebel against the Christian faith and to philosophize against God, couldn't get past the fact that he finally said, well, I know that I exist because I'm thinking. And animals have no ability to reason like that. They can learn true things. They don't just have instinct and instinctive learning and so forth. They actually teach their babies things and so forth. And the evolutionists have been really excited to point that out because Christians should have been pointing that out because it's very biblical. Uh, and, and that they think they're hitting a, a hit for their cause. But the truth is there's a sharp dividing line between the ability to be a self-conscious being or not. In the sense, a lot again, animals have a certain level of self-consciousness, but in the sense of being able to philosophize about it, to be to be step back from it abstractly, and and make theories about it. First Thessalonians five twenty three, Hebrews four twelve so talks about the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Speaking of all three parts of man's body uh, being, First Thessalonians three, may your spirit, soul, and body be kept preserved. So we have three parts. Keep that in mind as we go forth. Now, I'm going to tell us some th- th- uh, some attributes, three biblical facts about man. One we've already hit that uh, is called in theology the Imago Dei. That is, man is created in the image of God. So we've already talked about that. Let's move on. Ontology and te- teleology we've actually hit on. That is, you have a purpose and you have a design. And the design goes way deeper than you have opposing thumbs. <laughs> you know, uh, really, you have opposing thumbs, you know, wow. And it goes way deeper than you can use tools and make tools. And it, uh, it, it, it goes to the things like you have a conscience, you have intuition and knowledge of God and all sorts of things. But the bottom line is that you have a purpose. And that purpose was lost in the fall of man. And salvation is to restore that purpose. That's why the, the sinner's prayer gospel is such an abomination, because you weren't just called to say, I need a little help, forgive me. You were called to be restored to a calling. And when you, when you start to grow up and fight against the, this, part of sin is rebellion, and it's a rebellion against growing up. And it's, so it's re, what's happened to the whole evangelical church is we want to get forgiveness from God, but we don't want to get obligations from God. When God calls you, you're a new creature. You're obliged to seek him, to love him, to know him, to drive out darkness, to spread light, to enter a covenant people of God and become more and more under the lordship of Christ and more and more a liberating army to set the lost and the captives free. And that's not an option. And you don't just need to go to church and do your minimum thing and and get a little churching up. You're either with me or you're against me, Jesus said. He who doesn't gather with me scatters. You're either all out, flat out serving God, or you're running from God. 
Now, I think there can be a transitional season where you're first learning the gospel and first coming to church and, and so forth, but God, in the idea of these instantaneous conversions, even babies are can take nine months from the time they're conceived until they come out at a certain level of development and maturity. In the, that's what it, when you're born again, there's a prenatal development period called conviction of sin and, and awareness of God. And, and you need Bible studies and you need people to talk to you about the gospel and you need to read the gospels and, and so forth. And there's some kind of period where, where you're being formed in Christ. Now, um, so those, those two facts, that is, you're made in God's image, and you have a purpose. The third fact that's really, really crucial, and this, this is the fact that all of modern culture um, denies, and all of modern Christianity tries to minimize. And that is, you're fallen. Now, when I was a kid, I was taught that there that we were that, that there was a concept called original sin, and the depth of how I was taught it was: you came into this world with a little black mark on your soul from Adam and Eve's sin, and when you uh, get baptized, it's erased. I I didn't know that an axe had to be laid to the root of it. I didn't know that God had to die for it. I, I didn't know, any, you know, I didn't know any ramifications about its ongoing power in my life. Does that make sense? Now, so what I want to do with the remaining time I have, about 15 minutes, 17 minutes, is I want to plumb the depths of the fall. We talked about what a plumb line is, and I want to op help us open our eyes to see, you know, Ray Nethery's joke, uh, be, you know, cheer up, it's much worse than you think. Because then you'll, th that will drive you to God, to find the grace of God. And that will make you give up religion, give up performance-based Christianity. You'll be less judgmental to others. You'll be more able to speak harsh truths because you'll be able to do them in love. And you'll have a whole better definition of love. Okay. So the first thing of man's fallen nature is that we're all hiding from God. Romans 3, there's none who seeks from God, no, not one. So the next time you're in a church and someone stands up and they say, I've been looking for truth for 25 years in my whiskey bottle and uh, in my crack pipe and uh, at the porn shop and I've been looking for these truths and you know last night I found the truth and you just you know stand up and say I just want to lovingly say liar liar pants on fire <laughs> you know uh, your your nose runs your feet smell you don't love Jesus and you're going to hell <laughs> no I'm just kidding around uh, <laughs> the truth is God came looking for you and last night, he finally got you cornered enough and helped you get humble enough to see your need for him. He came looking for you. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. And you know what's so wonderful about seeing this truth? Every man is hiding from God. Every woman is hiding from God. Everyone is running from God. And if he came seeking for you, there's much more security in that. 
How would you like your salvation to, to be dependent on how much you keep discovering truth? Anybody want to go there? How much would you like your salvation to be in, in his ongoing saving and sanctifying work because he's a covenantly faithful God who when uh, he called you, he will also bring it to pass. Right? And that the one who started a good work in you, Philippians 1, 6, will keep completing it until the fullness of Christ Jesus, until the day of Christ Jesus, which doesn't mean the second coming. It means Jesus Christ is completely light in you. Where it's hard to tell the difference between Chris Wu and Jesus. <laughs> you know, he, Jesus is going to keep forming Jesus and Chris, and he's going to keep becoming lighter and lighter until you go, wow, I've, I was talking to Chris, and I felt like I was talking to Jesus. That, <laughs> that should happen. That's the goal of the Christian life. Okay? So, um, man is running from God. And man is not neutral about it. Man is fallen spirit, soul, and body. We're going to talk a little bit about each of those. I'm going to have to hurry up my time here. And so I'll tell you a quick story. When I was an undergraduate, I had just come to Christ as the age of 17, my first quarter of college, about six months before I turned 18. Went to college a little early. And, uh, and during the four years I was in college, I noticed how messed up all the professors that I, I built relationships with my history professors and so forth. And, and almost all of them were, were kind of blew my mind because I was used to kind of grownups having somewhat their act together. And the more I knew professors, the more they didn't have that. And at first, I was just full of compassion. But eventually, as I began to study presuppositional apologetics and study these things, I began to realize they're not, they're not sinning with drugs and alcohol. They're sinning with their theories. They're running from God with their ideas and their entire interpretations of sociology, psychology, and history are designed to try to hide from God, just like Adam and Eve tried to hide from the presence of God after they sinned. All fallen men know they're naked and know they're ashamed and think the answer is to hide from God in every way they can. So let's think of it spiritually. Men will go to every form of the occult rather than come to Jesus. One of the tragedies of our day is so many churches are cessationists and don't believe in the power of God in a high percentage of kids who grow up in cessationist churches that don't have casting out of demons, that don't have speaking in tongues, that don't have prophesying, that don't have see anyone raised from the dead or healed or get out of wheelchairs. If you grow up in that kind of Christianity, you have spiritual needs and you will find them somewhere. And if the church is telling you God isn't doing that anymore, you'll go find it in drugs, sex, rock and roll. You'll find it in various forms of the new age and the occult. And that's why we're losing. You, you take the most cessationist denomination, in, 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 uh, I'll probably go ahead and say it, the Southern Baptist in, in, in America's South, and the majority of Southern Baptist teach, uh, pastors are actually members of the, you know, the Illuminati, the Freemasons. Now, that is a false religion. Most denominations like Reformed and Catholic and so forth have a strict rule. You can't be a member of the church and be a Freemason. The majority of Southern Baptist pastors are Freemasons. 
Why? Because they're looking for spiritual connectivity because they're spiritual beings and they're sinning with their spirit. So this, I, you have to watch out for the modern idea that's so rampant in Christianity today that spiritual things are good and all sins are about bodily things like drunkenness and getting in bar fights and lusting. Well, those are about bodily sins, but there's plenty of spiritual sins. You know, Christians read their horoscopes and talk, are you a Pisces or No, I'm a Christian. I don't really believe the stars have anything to do with my destiny or purpose. You know, our soul, I wish I could develop this, you know, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. But if you really get down to studying sociology, psychology, and most of the modern, uh, what they call the humanities, they're wrapped in evolutionary materialism ideas in such a way as to get God out of the picture. That's the whole point of them. Sigmund Freud, who was the father of modern psychology, I was reading a bunch of his stuff online this morning, uh, in his, you know, he acknowledged, here's what he did. He said the, the number one problem of all mankind in his book, Civilization is Discontents, is that every person has a deep sense of guilt. As a Christian, we would say that's because you violated God's character, God's nature, God's law, and you need, for, you need to repent, make Jesus Lord, and re- become a new creature. Sigmund Freud said it's the church's fault, and it's your mother's fault, and it's the dog that bit you when you're five's fault, and it's everybody else's fault but yours. And you don't have real guilt. You have guilt feelings. So you just need to do cocaine and things like he did to try to get rid of these guilt feelings. Now, we have a few ex-druggies in our midst who will tell you that won't work. You can only erase real guilt by the blood of Christ. So that's, you know, the first thing is understand that the philosophies of this age, the new age, evolution, evolution is absurd as heck. Life has to come from, they have to jump lots of leaps, but leaps and bounds, lots of crazy boundaries. That material always existed and created itself. That it's, that it didn't entropy and that life came from non-life, that there's some upward direction that's making things more complex when everything in nature says it's breaking down and getting long. They're, they're making huge leaps against the laws of science because they want to do so. Men who are blind seek the blindness because their deeds are evil. 1 John 3.17, which ought to be more popular than 3, 1 John 3.16. And 1 John 3.21, men love the darkness. Second thing you need to know is that you're spiritually dead. God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did they die? Not really. He escorted them out the garden. They continued to live. They had a bunch of kids. So what did God mean? Was God wrong? No, they did die. Their spirits died. It became out of fellowship with God, which doesn't mean, as John pointed out last week, their spirits still existed, but it was no longer a temple for the Holy Spirit. And every man apart from Christ doesn't need to just embrace the ideas. They need to experience the power of the risen Jesus. They need to meet him. They need to have him say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
right to their spirit. You could be the instrument of it, but if it doesn't go beyond your telling them to the spirit of God telling them, nothing actually happened. You surely will die. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people, as John said last week again, listen to his message just yesterday again. Was that two weeks ago? I don't know. Whichever one, John, the one on John 3. Uh, you know, dead men tell no tales. They don't do anything else. Lazarus wasn't lying in the grave saying, I can't wait till Jesus gets here and, and raises me up from the dead. <laughs> he wasn't doing that. And you weren't looking for God. You were dead. Till he said, John Bradbury, I say to you, arise. And I'm showing you the miracle of that all these things that, that the Bible says about human nature are exactly true of you. And that's the miracle you need to see. Men are prideful, determining for yourselves good from evil. It's amazing. If you, if you study the Enlightenment, there's, we're going to talk uh, in chapter 15 about the direction of history, but the, the humanists have a thing called historical linear optimism. You know, Ben Franklin was in Thomas Jefferson, these kind of guys, the French philosophers, they believe given enough time, you know, that's what, like, if you watch Star Trek, you know, given enough time, the planets will align, people will actually be at peace, the United Nations will really work. Yeah. <laughs> if you believe that, let me give you some LSD, it might come closer to reality there. It, it, it's not working and it won't work. Man is at enmity with God and one another. And nobody ever got along since the fall of man. Cain didn't kill Abel because of overcrowding. We don't have sibling rivalry because your children are basically good. They don't learn the concept of mind so much easier than sharing because they're basically good. And this is not popular in our day. And this is not preached in churches. But this is preached in Paul and in Jesus and in the Bible. And it is the most loving thing you can believe because you'll never come to God till you really see how sinful you are. And you'll wander around in darkness because you need to have the light of God show you how, how full of spider webs and dingy, moldy, cruddy crud. I can't wait to tomorrow we're going to cut an opening in the nursery on, uh, into uh, the second nursery into the underneath the stairwell. And that's been uncleaned and untouched for 60 years. And and I can tell you, there's going to be some crud in there. <laughs> you know, I can't wait to bleach it with chlorine bleach, Sam. <laughs> uh, you know, because it's got crud in it, I'm sure. Even though I haven't seen it, I can see it in the spirit. There's going to be crud there. Because why? Because, you know, everything was affected by the fall of man. Moving on, rebellion. Uh, that's, I mean, wow. If there's anything characteristic of our age, you know, the bumper sticker that became popular in the 60s, question authority. One of the things I just look for when I'm counseling people and so forth, uh, I still continue to love them and have some relationship. But if basically people just blow off your counsel all the time, I look for someone who really wants to grow. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. 
And, I, you know, sometimes when you're talking to people, you can actually see it in their eyes like you're, you're quoting scripture. You know you're infinitely more mature than them, not infinitely, but considerably more mature than them and so forth. And you just see it in their face and their eyes. He's wrong. He doesn't understand me. <laughs> and, and I just realize, like, I just say, God, I pray you'll bring them to the point where they're discipleable. And they have to give, are willing to, to be set free of rebellion and pride and that know-it-all thing, which every teenager has. But what we have today is more and more people are carrying that teenage immaturity into adulthood, into their 30s and 40s. Read a, uh, the book Revolt Against Maturity by Rusash Rushduni or Diane's West book called The Death of the Grown-Up. Uh, blame shifting. We're experts at blame shifting. Excuse making, rationalizing. Uh, I Some people are just off the charts, good blame shifters and excuse makers. I There's some people that you start working with and they start blame shifting, excuse making, rationalizing before you even get to say what you're talking about. <laughs> You know what? You know, the one thing that I learned, I, when the hardest pastor I ever had was a guy wired a lot like me, and he had a lot of knowledge and so forth. And so he would always answer this full biblical answer. And I already knew 90% of what he was saying. And the first time I asked him some questions, I felt something rising up in me like, I know, I know, I know. But I didn't give voice to it, and I sought God about it. And he said, don't ever say, I know. Because in your in your uh, seeking to justify yourself and say you know what you don't need his opinion, and you'll lose the ten percent of things that he's saying that you don't know. And he, it doesn't matter if he knows whether you know. That's just pride. You know, if your father's teaching you something that you already know and so forth, just listen anyway. Maybe you'll pick up something you if you knew ninety nine percent of it then listen and don't be defensive and you'll get the 1% you are missing. Defensiveness has become a real problem. Enmity. Um, just study human history. I believe they, they um, some historians did a study of in, in known history. Of course, you, there's you know all these speculations about things like the Neolithic age in 10,000 BC. But Basically, around 3500 B.C. to 2500 B.C., approximately right after Noah and his ark, about eight major civilizations sprung up all over the world, approximately right after the time of the Tower of Babel would have been. And they were very developed civilizations with a high degree of technology and so forth. Now, all of them had various views of writing, and we know a lot about history since then. But what uh, what is... Uh, what is known is that if you add up all the days of human history when there wasn't a war going on somewhere in this planet, they don't add up to a full year's worth of days in the last 6,000 years. That means that for every day there was a, not a war, there was two years that there was a war. And man is basically good. You know what? There's been problems between husbands and wives, men and women. There's been generation gaps. Go back and study the generation gap of 1848. There's been uh, wars between countries. There's been racial hatred. 
the whole point of Ephesians is that God broke down. Everyone wants to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 11, uh, but they don't, 1 through 10, and everyone knows that, but they don't know 11 through 22, which is the whole result of the gospel is God broke down the dividing wall. So if we have churches that are separately white and separately black, and, and we don't have churches that have various socioeconomic statuses and various age, well, we got nothing. We've got religion instead of reality. Man is at enmity, and what Christ came to do is, is, is get, set you free from enmity. And in fact, I want to challenge you, how many people are you deep bosom friends with that are really, really different than you? They're not the same age. They're not the same socioeconomic status. They're not the same education. They're not the same color, uh, etc. How many people are you really involved in their life that, you know, have, have some that are completely different than you in those ways? How many people that are hard to love? Well, lastly, I hope this adds up to one last concept because I'm five minutes past my time. And uh, John is looking at his clock back there. Uh, depravity is total. You cannot eat there. You know, the idea of a free will Baptist church is the idea that you can save yourself, but you can't. Depravity is total. God has to save you. And there, that will make, if, if you get a hold of those concepts, that will make your love for people much more uh, productive and much more fruitful. Amen.